If you're able to stand, would you stand with us as we make a joyful noise to him this morning? Shout out your praise. 
I love you, Lord, O oh my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my Let's our voices together. Your powerful hand is upon me to live in the light of you. Can clap your hands, make a joyful noise. Victors of faith in the arms of your grace and your love, I am so secure. The winds and the waves may be raging, so on you I will fix my eyes. Storms have no choice at the sound of your voice. Know that your peace will be mine Cause you are the rock that I will stand on You are the hope I hold on to You are my source of life My source of strength I will build my life on you God, you are our rock And we make a joyful noise to you presence is ever around me, like the sun pouring out of the sky. No greater love under heaven above, to you I abandon my life. Cause you are the rock that I will stand on, you are the hope I hold on to. You are my source of life, my source of strength that will build my life on. You are the rock. You are the hope I hold on to. You are my source of life, my source of strength that will bear my life on you. My rock, my fortress, my rock, my fortress, defender and guide, my hope. Shelter, redeemer, life, and again, my rock, my fortress, defender, and guide, my hope, my shelter, redeemer, life. You are the rock that I will stand on. You are the hope I hold on to. Every ocean roars to the Lord of hosts. 
nations of the earth, all the angels and the saints. Who is like Who is like him? The lion and the lamb seated on the throne. Mountains bow down, every ocean roars to the Lord of hosts. Praise and from the rising of the sun to the end of every Nations of the earth, all the angels and the saints sing Who is like him, the lion and the lamb, seated on the throne? Who is like you, God? Mountains bow down and every roars to the Lord of of the earth, all the angels and the saints, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, Jesus, it is our great joy to sing praise to you. Who is like you indeed? In all the earth, in all the world, in all the universe, there is no one that compares with you. For you created all of these things for your pleasure and for your glory. And Lord, that includes us. You created us for your great pleasure. You created us to be your glory and to spread your glory and to enjoy your glory. And so this morning as we pray to you, we ask that, Lord, you would forgive our transgressions. Your word is full of psalms and prayers begging for forgiveness, Lord, because we know our position before you, and you are a holy and a separate and a perfect God. Lord, we are none of those things. We are corrupted by sin, and every single part of us is corrupted by sin. It doesn't make any sense, Lord, that you would even allow us into your presence let alone that you would give us the promise of eternal salvation to be in your presence for all time. Lord, let that sink into our hearts this morning. And what you have accomplished so that we could do that, Lord, what you have given your only son dying upon the cross for us, that we could have forgiveness. Lord, you didn't need to do that for you. That was for your people. And it is your great glory as well. So this morning as we come before you, Lord, we celebrate your work upon the cross. We celebrate your resurrection and the conquering of death. We celebrate the fact that you would take an unworthy people and call them your people and make a way that that could be true. Lord, we thank you this morning.
mountain maker Ocean tamer Glimpses of you burning my eyes The worship of heaven fills up the skies You made it all Said let there be
spoken words were formed. You breathed the life was born. You knew that one day you would come. Thank you, So far from heaven's throne, clothed in human form, you showed the world the Father's love. You gave, you gave your life away. You gave, you gave your life away. You gave, you gave your life away for me. Your grace has broken every chain. My sins are gone, my debt's been paid. You gave, you gave your life away for me. For me. You lived a sinless life. You lived a sinless life, yet you were crucified. You bought our freedom on the cross. Forsaken for our sins, you died and rose again. Jesus, you are the Lamb of God. sins are gone, my debt's been paid. You, you gave, you gave your life away for me. How glorious is your love. If I could sing forever, it's not enough. How glorious
This morning's reading, we're in the book of Daniel, beginning chapter 7, the first 14 verses. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. <coughs> I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Thank you, Jim. Let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, you did give your life away for us. And Lord, uh, as Ramey said, that was not out of any need on your behalf. It wasn't anything that you were required to do. There is no authority that can tell you you must do these things. Lord, it was all of your grace. And so we're grateful that you have drawn us to yourself, that you have made us your people. Thank you for your mercy to us. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, AJ and his uh, um, the problems with his eyes. Lord, I pray that you would lead him to uh, a good di diagnosis and, and a swift healing. Father, we think of the Crumrise and the, the gigantic changes going on in their lives. We pray for Kayla as she heads to college. Lord, would you root her there well and uh, connect her with some good friends who would be a, an encouragement and, and a positive influence in her life. Pray for Jen and for Ramey as they have to prepare the house to sell and uh, begin to uh, make preparations to move to New Jersey. Lord, would you bless their work, uh, help them to uh, think clearly about what needs to stay and what needs to go and uh, how best to do that. And Father, we pray for Jeannie as she has to make a decision for her future as well. Would you bless her with wisdom, great wisdom, great insight into what the right thing to do is. Be with them. Uh, as they face these challenges. Uh, we pray for Ramey's success in his new position at Calvary and uh, that you would um, accomplish wonderful things through his ministry there. Father, we also pray for our next worship leader. Lord, would you lead us to the right person? We trust that you have that person in mind and that you will connect us. Lord, it's our desire that they show up sooner rather than later so we can have a period of transition. And uh, so we're trusting you. We're watching what you will do on our behalf, knowing that you do all things well. Father, I want to pray for the Church of the Canyons. Uh, we're looking for a worship leader. Lord, they have been looking for a senior pastor for a while. Um, and a couple of candidates who came up did not work out right. And so, Lord, would you uh, lead the Church of the Canyons to their next pastor, the person who could lead them well, that would preach to them solidly from your word, but also guide them in what it means to grow as a disciple. And uh, we just pray for the success of that church. Lord, we ask all of these things. In Christ's name, we pray that you'd be with us now as we look to your word. Amen. Amen. So today is uh, the anniversary, the 70-something anniversary of D-Day, the day that uh, the troops landed on the beach at Normandy, the beginning of the end of World War II. And just last week was Memorial Day, the day that we remember those who've fallen in combat. And my habit is on Memorial Day, I usually post a video of a song that I just really love. It's called The War Was in Color. It's by a group called Carbon Leaf. Carbon Leaf is an East Coast band, so if you haven't heard of them, uh, you're not totally square and I'm not just totally hip. It's just, I've, I've heard of them before. But the song, it always grips me. It always, it always amazes me. It starts with, um, the music's kind of mellow. It starts with uh, a young boy finds a box of his grandfather's things. And he says, these old pictures are cool. Tell me some stories. Was it like in the old war movies? So he's, he's excited about this, you know, picturing John Wayne charging the hill and stuff. When Grandpa says, sit down, son. 
Let me fill you in. Where to begin? Let's start with the end. This black and white photo doesn't capture the skin. From the flash of the gun to the soldier who's done, trust me, grandson, the war was in color. And where the song goes after that, after this initial discussion between grandpa and grandchild, is it's a series of pictures. They're trying to paint the war in color with, with word pictures. They're putting things together to help us feel the horror of war, the terror of it, how confusing and, and just overwhelming it is. So they, they have some lines that say things like, I felt the crossfire stitching up soldiers into a blanket of dead. As the night goes colder, in a window back home, a blue star is traded for gold. That, that imagery of crossfire stitching up soldiers into death. And another line says, from the shock of the shell to the memory of smell, if red is for hell, the war is in color. And then as it moves through these emotional pictures, these things that are supposed to grab you and drag you into the war, eventually the, slow, the song slows down again and it comes to its resolution. And it says something that, that almost seems impossible in the end. The grandfather says, now I lay in my grave at age 21, long before you were born, before I bore a son. What good did it do? Well, hopefully for you, a world without war, a world full of color. Grandpa died before he had a son. So obviously the song is not talking about a grandfather speaking to a child. It's, it's telling the story of a generation speaking to us. And was war worth it? Was it worth doing? Well, yeah, because our hope is we, we did this so that you would have a world, hopefully without war, and a world full of color, not violence, but beauty. And, and it seems kind of improbable, but having listened to that song, because it was Memorial Day, it occurs to me that the way they move through that song is actually a helpful way for us to understand Daniel chapter 7. Because Daniel chapter 7 is doing a very similar kind of thing. Um, we talked about the, the first portion of the book, right? There's a, a section of Daniel that's written in Aramaic. And so we should normally assume that that is a unit. And that is chapters 2 through 7. And, and chapter 7 kind of marries up with chapter 2. Chapter 2 was Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the image with different types of materials. And what we found out then was that was four different kingdoms. And then there's a kingdom coming that will destroy them all and, and will never go away. And this image that Daniel sees is kind of like that. It kind of mirrors up to that. So this is actually a unit. This all fits together. This is the first portion of the book. But when Jim was reading, did you notice it was a little different? It wasn't like those narratives. The first portion, chapters 1 through 6, are really what can be called uh, a court story, court narrative. What's happening? Because it's always about the king, and it's always these big things that are going on. Daniel and his three friends are prominent in it, but it's narrative. It's, it's telling a story. Then we get to this, and it's bizarre images. It's very strange. And so it is kind of not like the first portion of the book. It's what we call apocalyptic literature. And what Daniel is doing is what's going to come after this, the rest of the book of Daniel, is going to be more apocalyptic literature. These bizarre images and these wild beasts doing incredible things. And so why does Daniel include this in both the first half and the second half of the book? Why is it kind of the bridge between the two? Well, because if you look through church history, we have done pretty badly reading and understanding apocalyptic literature. There's, there's just 
opinions all over the map on this stuff. What I think Daniel is doing is by putting this where he has, introducing it the way he has, he's teaching us how to read apocalyptic literature. So we're only going to do half the chapter today. We're only going to get the imagery. We're not going to get the interpretation until next week. But what I want to do this week is use this to teach us how do we read apocalyptic literature. Because Daniel is not the only apocalypse in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the word apocalypse comes from apocalyptus, which is the very first word of um, the book of Revelation in Greek. And what it means is, what do you think of Revelation, or when you think of uh, apocalypse, what do you think? Apocalypse now, and end of the age, and the world is going to come to an end, and it's destruction and all that. That's kind of what it means in popular culture. In biblical text, in, in our sense from the Bible, it's not about the destruction of the world and everything. It is unveiling. That's what apocalypse means, is to unveil. So it's an uncovering of something. And so when we read about the apocalypse, it's this uncovering, this fulfilling. And um, there's a bunch of technical explanations of what it means that it's apocalyptic literature. They're really technical, <laughs> which means dry. Um, what is going on is we're getting these, these stories and these wild visions looking forward. And so God is narrating history, and he's using these images. And that's what we're going to talk about today is why would he do that? Why would it look like that? And so why would it happen this way? Well, let's let Daniel explain it to us. Instead of coming up with our own theories, we'll just walk through what Daniel has said in the context he said it, and we'll see what we can learn from that. So he begins, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote them down and told the sum of the matter. So it starts rooted in reality, doesn't it? It starts in very simple terms. What's going on? Well, in the first year of Belshazzar, Daniel's in bed. So far, so good. That's, that's pretty easy. Did you notice, though, we're back in the first year of Belshazzar. So this is not chronological anymore. We have now jumped backwards in time because Belshazzar ruled for about 10 years. Daniel... In chapter 5, when he met Belshazzar, was probably was at the end of Belshazzar's rule. So we've jumped back for however that period of uh, Darius in the last chapter was, 10 years before that even. So we're not going to go strictly chrono chronologically anymore. We're jumping back in time. So it's like I said, it starts out pretty easy, pretty calm, right? I'm, I'm in bed. It doesn't get much more laid back than that. Daniel declared. So now Daniel is, is, here's what Daniel wrote down. This is, he woke up in the morning, picked up his journal, and started writing. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So what does it mean that there were four winds stirring up the great sea? How do you read that? Does the number four mean something? Is it that winds, there's four different spirits doing something? Or, and they're stirring? Actually, I think what the imagery there is, is this is an earthly thing, right? The winds, the four winds, not of the heavens, but of the earth. And they're not doing something up in the sky or, or out in the stars. They're stirring up the ocean, and the, the waves are rolling. So the first thing we get is, is Daniel is telling us this is rooted in reality. It's rooted on earth. The earth is doing this. This is where it's happening. Now, the sea for the Jew in the Old Testament typically was an area of chaos. Uh, look through the Old Testament. The Jews were not known as sailors. 
Um, matter of fact, the one, who's the one sailor you think of from the Old Testament? Well, he got lobbed overboard. So this was not a, a, an area that they delighted in. And, and you know, there's reasons for that. The, the, the law told them that they couldn't eat certain types of fish. So they, abund they were abundant in the sea and they weren't allowed to eat them. So the sea just wasn't an attraction for them. So to the Jewish mind, the sea is this area of chaos. It is representative of the nations. And that's what's going on is these nations are in turmoil. And just the, the natural way things happen, the winds of the earth are stirring them up. And what happens is that as this is bubbling, these four odd creatures come up out of it. Four strange beasts arise up out of the ocean. And so that's, that's the picture that we get of what's happening. Now, we're going to go through the four beasts uh, one at a time. And we're going to spend most of our time on the fourth one. So let's take a look at this first beast. The first, this is verse 4, the first was like a lion and it had eagle's wings. Then I saw, uh, then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground to make, and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the man, mind of a man was given to it. So this first beast, it looks like a lion with wings. So the, the lion is the king of the jungle, right? The lion is, is this terrifying creature. Now, for us, it's not terrifying because where have you ever seen a lion? In a zoo. You know, there's, there's a gap between you and it. It's not, there's no chance it's going to take your head off. These Jews at this time, if they ran across a lion, where did they see it? Out in the open. They were exposed. So imagine if somebody dropped you into the lion's den at the San Diego Zoo. How would you feel? You would not be going, isn't that a cute kitty? Your, your life is threatened. This animal is not stoppable. The reason that, that it's mentioned that Samson killed a lion and, and he left the corpse by the side of the road is because it's incredible that Samson killed a lion. Lions are dangerous beasts. So this first beast should, first of all, be terrifying. It's powerful. It is the top predator. But not only is it a lion, it has wings like an eagle these large majestic wings. Well, for us, eagle is, is the symbol of our country. It's our, our source of pride. But imagine you're a, a Jewish uh, shepherd at this time. Occasionally, you might see a, a, an eagle swoop down and pick up a lamb and haul it off. They're, they're that big, they're that powerful, they can do that. So this, this eagle is this apex predator of the air. It's the most powerful bird in the sky. It's the one that all the other ones are afraid of. So when you combine those two together, this first beast comes up, and it's scary. It's powerful. It's destructive. It, it rages. But this one, it, it has the wings of an eagle, and as Daniel recognizes this and is, is frightened by it, he sees the wings plucked off. What happened there? Well, it's, its wings get plucked off, and then it's lifted up and stands on two feet. This is not your typical lion. There's something odd about this. And then after it stood up on two feet, it says it was given the mind of a man. What an odd thing to happen. That's just a strange thing. So what is this first beast supposed to be? How do we understand this? Well, we know that when Jerusalem was taken in exile, it was Nebuchadnezzar who sacked Jerusalem, right? He was the one who came and took it away. And in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, this is what he says. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not. For I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket 
a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place. He has made your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. So God himself points at Nebuchadnezzar and says, a lion has arisen. So it seems quite natural that Daniel, if he's speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, would point to him and say, he's a lion. He's like a lion. So this is, this is the picture as this lion is raised up and it's wings like an eagle. It's majestic. It's able to just go wherever it wants and do whatever it wants. But the wings get plucked off. It, its majesty is reduced. It's still a lion. It's still pretty fearsome, but its, its wings are plucked off. And then it's given the mind of a man. Well, remember chapter 4? Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a tree being cut down and a band put around it. And, and what Daniel comes and explains to him is, that's you, O king. And he lost his mind. He went out into this, the field, walking around on all fours, eating grass like an animal for a period of time until his mind was restored to him. And so I think what Daniel is painting here with this first beast is he's reminding us that this is Nebuchadnezzar. So this is why this pairs up with chapter 2, the image of the, the um, statue with the different metals. This lion is Nebuchadnezzar. He is that head of gold. And he has, uh, there's, there's something that's called the divine passive. It says his, he, his wings were plucked off. Does it say who plucked his wings off? It's passive voice. In the Air Force, we were told never use passive voice. His wings were plucked off. No, it should be so-and-so plucked his wings off. Um, when, when you see that in the Old Testament, sometimes it's referred to as the divine passive. In other words, they don't say God did it, but that's what we're supposed to assume. And if that's Nebuchadnezzar, then that's exactly what happened. God humbled him and God raised him back up. So that's the first beast. It's terrifying. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. So this next beast comes up out of the ocean, and it looks like a bear. Now, there's something odd about this bear. It's raised up on one side. So does it have scoliosis, or what's going on? Well, if we're following the pattern from chapter 2, then this must be the Median Persian Empire, right? So the reason it's probably raised up on one side is the relationship between Med the Medes and the Persians was not equal. The Persians dominated. They were, they were much stronger in that relationship. And so the bear is raised up on one side. That means one part of that alliance is elevated. That would be the Persians. And it has three ribs in, in between its teeth. Ah, here we go. The three ribs represent what? I haven't a clue. <laughs> there's, there's really no hint at what they are. Some of the commentators were saying, well, um, the uh, Babylonian Empire had three major provinces. And so the three ribs represent the three provinces. Um, that would be Babylon, Lydda, and Egypt. And I couldn't find that anywhere except in those commentaries. I couldn't find any author or, uh, authentication of that. So it might be true. I, I don't know. Um, here's another way to look at this, the three ribs. What was the, what was the bear told? Arrives, devour much flesh. It's still got its last meal in its mouth, and it's told, go eat more. And so that's where it's going to go. Now, the bear was not as terrifying as the lion, but it was still pretty scary. Remember what happened to Elisha? Some boys come out and said, hey, go up, baldy. And a bear came out and, just, and killed them, killed like 20 of them. So these bears are still scary animals. 
They're not the, the lion, but they're still pretty terrifying. So here comes this bear, one side raised up over the other, tea, uh, meal in its mouth, and it's going to go out and eat some more. Well, this would be the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And, and they're going to come not quite in the same majesty that Nebuchadnezzar had, not the head of gold, but they'll be the chest and arm of, of silver, still, still pretty terrifying. And so they rise up, and that's what's going to happen. And then verse 6, And after this I looked, and behold, another, one more beast, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So now who's this? This is one where we get into a lot of debates, and who cares? We know. We've got the pattern, haven't we? We've got the, the, the statue laid out before us. Daniel's already interpreted that. What we think we know from the statue is this is a, a kingdom that rises, and it spreads fast. It, it goes across the, the land very quickly. Leopard, I looked it up, is only second to the cheetah as far as speed. And there are no cheetahs in, in the area that we live here. There's no cheetahs in Babylon, but the leopard goes up into Persia. And so this leopard would be known as this fast hunter, this flies across the ground. And not only is this one fast, it's got four extra wings. And these wings make it even quicker. And so this is probably speaking of Alexander the Great. He came from Macedonia, and in 10 years he took over all of this land. That's, that, at, at those times, that was lightning fast. Couldn't believe how fast he swept through the area and took over the world. So he's that leopard. His kingdom is that leopard. But there's something odd about this leopard. It has four heads. It has four wings. What, is, what does that represent? What's, what's going on with these four heads? Um, one thing is, you're not going to sneak up on this leopard, are you? <laughs> he's looking backward and forward at the same time. So there's no getting around that. What happened with Alexander was Alexander swept through the known world, conquered it all in record time, just lickety-split, and then died young. And so his kingdom was then ruled by four of his generals. And so his four generals took over. That would be uh, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Cassander were his four generals who took over. So that's the four heads, would be these four generals. So this kingdom now is not as unified as it was under Nebuchadnezzar, where there's one ruler. It, it's now spread out, and there's these four men who are, who are leading it. So that's the three animals that rise up really quick. Those are pretty easy to understand. Daniel has laid it out for us. We can see where that goes. The next one is a bit of a problem. Verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from the other beasts that went before it and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the horns were plucked up by the root. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man and a mouth, speaking great things. So you remember from chapter 2, that fourth kingdom would be the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay mixed together. That it will have great strength, but it will be brittle. And so that's this fourth kingdom. This is, this is Rome that came after Alexander. Um, it was exceedingly strong, had iron teeth and breaks in pieces. Listen to Jan, uh, Daniel 2, verse 40. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, 
because it breaks to pieces and shatters things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So that's, that's Daniel is tying those together for us. He's using the same words back and forth between them. So the iron uh, nature of this beast. But what kind of animal is it? No clue. It's so terrifying, he can't describe it. All he can say is it's not like the other ones. So these other kingdoms were kind of traditional kingdoms that rose up. When Rome comes along, Rome did something very different. Instead of trying to supplant and erase the, the Greek empire, it just merged into it. That's why we have Greek gods and Roman gods, and they have different names, but they're the same gods. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek and not Latin, is because they didn't try to replace everything. So there's something very different about this kingdom. It's, it's very strange. It has ten horns right off the bat, right? It's, it comes up with these ten horns. What we learn next week from verse 24, those ten horns are ten kings. So these are the Caesars. These are the, the kings that will rise up and take over. But then there's this little horn, kind of almost insulting. It's, it's a little horn, but it does tremendous things. So who is this, this little horn that shows up in the midst of the ten? Well, there's, there's some discussion on that. If you take Daniel to be later, to be written later, like second century B.C., then what they say is, this is Daniel looking back and explaining Antioch Epiphanes, the Roman uh, general who came in and, and raided um, um, the, the temple and sacrificed a pig on the temple altar and that kind of stuff. And that's why he's the little one and he speaks these blasphemous things. Um, Perhaps that could be, maybe, maybe it's like this. You know, with prophecy, prophecy will say something and it'll have an immediate application, but it'll also have something down in the future. So the king was told that um, his, his young wife would have a child. And before that child had learned to distinguish good from evil, then this other thing would happen. And that happened. That happened in the life of the king. But the way the New Testament picks that up is it says the virgin will conceive. And so there's, an, there's a, an immediate application, but then there's this telescoping one that happens in the future when Jesus was born. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe Daniel was speaking from the 6th century, not the 2nd century B.C. Maybe he was speaking about Antioch Epiphanes because he did do those kind of things. But maybe that wasn't the fullness of it. Maybe there was more to it. And so if we look to the New Testament and say, does the New Testament have anything to say about this? It actually does. Listen to what this, this tenth little horn does, verse 21 and 22. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So this little horn makes war with the saints. Antioch Epiphanes did that. He invaded uh, uh, Israel until the Ancient of Days came. Oops, the Ancient of Days did not come in the days of Antioch Epiphanes. So what's going on? The way the New Testament handles that, this is a very different person. So let me compare a couple of scriptures to draw this picture for you. Daniel, verse, uh, Daniel 7, verse 8. The little horn was given a mouth and it spoke great things. It was given a mouth. Revelation 13.5, the beast was given a mouth and it uttered haughty and blasphemous things. Verse 21, the little horn made war with the saints. Revelation 13.7, the beast made war on the saints and prevailed over them. Verse 24, the ten horns are ten kings. 
Revelation 17, 12. The ten horns are ten kings. Verses 26 and 27. The little horn is destroyed by the judgment of the Son of Man coming on clouds. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. And Revelation 19, 19 and 20. The beast is destroyed by the coming of Christ on clouds like a son of man. So this little horn could be Antioch Epiphanes. He could be anybody who opposes the church of Christ as his kingdom spreads throughout history. But ultimately, this little horn is going to be fulfilled in the Antichrist, the beast that comes. And he's going to follow the exact same pattern that is described in Daniel and repeated in Revelation. He, He will do things, but he will be brought to an end. So that's the image that we're given. These are the four beasts that we see. Um, Again, these are not critters you're going to see in a zoo. Uh, I think it is a mistake when people try to draw pictures of what they look like. Um, This is a dream. This is a vision on his bed. Have you ever had a dream where something impossible happens that, you know, can't possibly? I've had dreams where I'm both too big and too small at the same time. Um, It's just impossible. But you know what what the feeling is. You know what the impression is. So I think Daniel sees these visions, and he has this impression of these things. And and it feels like a line, and it feels like because he uses like a lot. So we shouldn't draw pictures of it and say this is what the creature was that walked out. It it wasn't. It was the impression. We're not going to see these in a zoo. We're not going to respond to them that way. But we should respond the way that Daniel is inviting us to. We should respond the way Daniel's audience was was supposed to respond, with genuine fear, genuine terror. This is really a scary beast. And then what we hear with the little horn, he wages war on the saints. That's not only in Daniel's time, that's in our time. That's what Revelation is telling us, is this little horn is going to wage war against us. And not just wage war, he's going to prevail against us for a period of time. So when you read this, you should have an emotional reaction to it. We're kind of fascinated by it, and it's kind of funny because these are funny-looking creatures, but the way we're supposed to enter into the story is there should be a sense of fear about that. It it should be a scary thing that these animals are going to do this, that these kingdoms are going to rage like that. But that's not the end of the story. That's not where it ends. Where do we go next? The very next thing says, And I looked. And thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. These kingdoms that rise up out of the chaos of the earth, that that come up out of the bubbling, turmoiling sea, they're nothing because the Ancient of Days comes in and takes his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. Now, that doesn't mean that God is an old guy sitting on a throne. God doesn't have a body. What these things are picturing is God's purity, his holiness, his unstained nature. The chaos of the world is in direct contrast to this ancient of days. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels were burning fire, and streams of fire issued out from before him. So here comes the ancient of days, and he sits on this throne. It has wheels. In other words, his kingdom, his seat of authority is not rooted in one place and can't go anywhere. It has wheels. It can be moved. It's free to roam across the earth. And it's fire. And the fire comes out from before it. The fire is 
his judgment. We'll see that in a minute. This is his judgment. It comes from his authority. It is issued from his throne, and it goes out to wherever he desires to send his judgment. He is firmly and totally in control of this. Verse 10, and a fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands, a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The angels, the saints are assembled around him. This king has a large court, probably made Nebuchadnezzar's court look silly, like, like a, a tiny little group of friends getting together. This court is innumerable that surrounds the king as he sits on his throne. The court sat in judgment and books were opened. The king has arrived. The, the beasts, they've been terrifying, but now the one who comes sits, sits and he is ready to give judgment. The books being opened are before the court. So verse 11, then I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This would be the perfect time when the Ancient of Days comes out and assumes his seat. This would be the perfect time for Little Horn to shut up. It would be the perfect time to stop talking. But it's like he is not even aware of what's going on. Daniel watches God roll out in this beautiful array, and he looks over, and the horn is still yapping, still speaking blasphemous, horrible things. And so what happens? The beast was killed. The animal that this, this horn came out of is killed, and its body is burned. That flame that came out from the throne, that was his judgment, and his judgment destroys this beast, burns it up with fire. As for the rest of the beasts... Their dominion was taken away. They were no longer given any authority, but their lives were prolonged. So the, the Roman Empire, the, the Rome that, that terrorized the Christians, that, that conquered the Middle East, that was destroyed. But there's still Persia, that's called Iran today. There, there's still Babylon. I mean, um, Saddam Hussein, delusionally, because he was a nutcase, thought himself to be the next Nebuchadnezzar. He kind of pictured himself that way. Those things continue on, but th this, this kingdom that, um, that had opposed the church, that had opposed the saints, has been destroyed. There's not another Roman Empire like that. It's, it's not happening because it's been totally destroyed. And so it's taken away. And, and what it says is a season and a time. So does that mean that there is, we should translate season, calculate that as one thing and time as another? I don't think that's supposed to be exact. Remember verse 25 talks about times, time, and half a time. And some people get very fascinated with that and try to figure out what does that mean? How many days is that? How many months is that? I don't think it's really in the text to tell us how long that is. You know what it does tell us? Those kingdoms have a specific period of time and it's over. It may seem long to us, it may seem like a time, a times and a half a time, way too long for us, but God goes, no, it's measured. It's a fixed amount, a season and a time, and that's it. They're done. That's that picture of the judge sitting and saying, here's your sentence. It will be carried out at this time. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. So God has looked on these kingdoms, these, these massive kingdoms, these terrifying creatures that ruled the earth, and he's ended them. Time is up. Their, their reign is over. What does he put in their place? What, what takes their place? The world should be ruled. So what comes instead? One like a son of man. The son of man is another way of saying a human being. But it's like a human being. So it, it, it's the son of man, and it's like a human being, but there's something different about this one. This, this is a person who comes, and he's presented before the ancient of days, but how does he come? He comes on the clouds of heaven. Now, who, who rides on the clouds of heaven? God does that. There are a handful of verses, just a couple of them. Isaiah 19, 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Psalm 104, verse 3. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. So this one, like a son of man, is also like God. He's, he's both. And his kingdom will never end. So how does one, like a son of man, have a kingdom that never ends? Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom ended because he died. Well, this one doesn't die. He continues on. This is Jesus. This is the picture of Jesus coming in to end all of these nations. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. He's being tried. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Everybody believes Jesus is referring to this very passage. This is what he's talking about. This is Jesus saying, I am the Son of Man who rides on the clouds. I am human and divine in one person. And when I come, I come in authority and power. And I come to bring those nations to an end. So go back to chapter 2. The image of the, the uh, idol was a head of gold, chest of silver, belly of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet of iron and clay. And what happened to that statue? This rock that no man touched, no hands carved out, came and struck those feet, and the entire thing blew into dust. And then that rock grew and filled the earth. It expanded. And that's what Jesus is saying. I am that person. I am that king who's coming. And so the, even the little horn, which is terrifying because it wages war, is going to be destroyed before the coming of Christ. When he arrives, that will be it. So this is the picture. I got a question. Why would God communicate like this? Why would he tell this story this way? Why didn't he just say, Nebuchadnezzar will be humbled and restored. His kingdom will be replaced by the Medes and the Persians. They'll be overtaken by Alexander the Macedonian, sweeping swiftly across the earth. And then Romans will show up, but they'll be destroyed by the Messiah, and the kingdom will ultimately be a new heavens and new earth. Why didn't he just say that? I mean, that's what we just spent, what, half an hour, 40 minutes figuring out. Well, I think there's a handful of reasons. Um, that is a true and an accurate recounting of history, what I just said. It's also extremely boring. It's not engaging in any way. It's, it's textbook. It's clinical. It lacks the emotion of what those changes will be like 
of how, how tumultuous that will be, how violent these rulers are going to be. It doesn't engage our imagination. It, it doesn't address our fears and our sufferings. It's clinical. The other reason I think that God speaks in ways like this is because when he speaks, his act of speaking accomplishes something. Right? God speaks or he doesn't speak. And when he does, it does something. So for imagine if God had made it super plain, if he had said that through Daniel, if chapter 7 was only about five lines, then Alexander might have heard of that. He might have gotten Daniel's prophecy and turned and said, I'm going to go sack Rome so they can't come and replace me. Or one of the Roman empires might have said, the, the son of man's going to rise from the Jews, wipe out all the Jews. Don't, don't just, you know, something small, wipe out the whole nation. It, it, by speaking it that way, he would have accomplished something different than what he did. So, of course, God was sovereign over these things. And, for example, Herod knew the prophecies. Magi from the east, maybe even from Babylon, came, and he knew that the Messiah was born, and so he tried to kill children. And God saved him. He did it anyway. But God did that on purpose. He, he did that for reason. So speaking the way he did, it accomplished something. But revealing history in this cryptic, this confusing way, um, it, it is a way that at the end of the book says that this prophecy is sealed up. It, it's locked up so you, you can't just read it and, and understand it. It's like Jesus said in Luke 8, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others... They're in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. We need to understand this. We need to see and understand this stuff. And so God communicates it in a way that would be confusing to others, but he'll reveal it to us. So that's, that's the nature of apocalyptic literature. So back to that carbon leaf song at the beginning. It shows us the flow of apocalyptic literature. In this, the Carbon Leaf song, it started rooted in reality as a grandfather speaks to his son. Or it begins with Daniel during the reign of Belshazzar, sleeping and having dreams. Starts in reality. Then it moves through word pictures that are intended to elicit emotional responses as they graphically describe real events like uh, crossfire stitching soldiers into a blanket of death. Or a beast with ten horns and iron, uh, teeth of iron waging a war against God's people. And then finally, the resolution is it moves to an image of hope. It moves to an image of the future filled with hope, hope that the lives lost in the war will yield a world without war and a life full of beautiful color. Or one like a son of man riding on clouds to bring an end to the kingdoms that oppose his people. So we need to read apocalyptic literature like this, not with a morbid fascination for figuring out exactly little details, what all these little pieces are, but to feel the flow of it, to enter the flow of it, to feel the terror, and then to hear the resolution, to go through the part that's scary and come to the part that gives us hope, so that when we walk through that, we will have rehearsed, where does my heart need to go in this? I, I, I'm fearful. Honestly, I am really fearful. This is not me faking it, and it doesn't mean that I lack faith or I'm somehow deficient. But I can aim my heart at hope, knowing that the Son of Man is coming on clouds of glory. And he will end all of this. This suffering is done. It will come to an end. So as odd as it sounds, we are supposed to read apocalyptic literature with hope, with blessing, to see this terrifying image and go, and our God rules over all of it. None of it is beyond his control. And, and that's the hope. That's the hope of 
apocalyptic literature. Now, what we're going to do next week is we'll take the rest of chapter 7, and what we'll hear is we'll hear an angel interpret it for us. And that's where I'll try to get into the application, not of apocalyptic literature in general, but this particular image, and what does it mean for us. So with that, let me close us in prayer. Lord, there is a giant beast that we can't even describe, terrifying, ravaging, raging through the earth. And yet, Lord, we see around the neck of that beast a chain. That chain ascends into heaven is in your hand. And at the right time, that beast will be pulled down. That terror will end. The the reign of, of destruction will be over. And Lord, the Son of Man, coming on clouds of glory, will reign on the earth in peace as it should be, as you desired it to be. Lord, before that day, we're, we're in the, caught in the middle of it. We're caught in the middle of the, the ocean churning because of the four winds of the world. But Lord, would you lead us through? Would you remind us of your promise that the little horn will wear, wage war against the saints, but his time is limited, and that will come to an end. And so, Lord, remind us through these graphic pictures what you intend to accomplish not just in this little room, not within this valley, but, Lord, across the world, across all the time, your purpose in it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you, Dan. You know, I think about the connection between communion and the images in Daniel. And God created the world and all that's in it, and he made things work the way they work. And sometimes images can communicate more. And I think, you know, Tim talked about that with the, the words of Daniel and describing Nebuchadnezzar as a lion and things like that. Communion's the same thing. Something about Christ sitting with his disciples and saying, eat this bread, this is my body, and drink this cup, this is my blood. There's something even more rich in the imagery of that. Um, well, let's stand and respond. We're going to sing one more song today, if you're able to stand. things in a little bit different order here. We had a business meeting this morning, and I think most of you were here, but